Hello and good afternoon, everybody. Um, I hope everybody can hear me clearly. Um, and I just want to welcome you all to today's event. Um, my name is Dr. Rebecca Naden, and I'm the director of the Global Risks and Resilience Programme at ODI. At ODI, I oversee a programme of work that looks at China's evolving geoeconomic strategy and policies across different sectors as the country moves towards its 2049 modernisation and national rejuvenation goals including the Belt and, Road, Belt and Road Initiative and its approach to global challenges such as climate change and pandemic responses. So I want to welcome you here today and thank you for joining this second event in the ODI seminar series on the reform of multilateral development banks. The role, the role of China as a rising global power and an emerging consumer market and an investment opportunity has been widely discussed and documented amongst China watchers, investors and economists for decades. However, under Xi Jinping, China is heralding in a new era with stated ambitions to become a nation with pioneering global influence by 2049. China's stated ambitions for a new area of influence and global development with initiatives such as the Belt and Road and a combined with a changing global risk profile means numerous questions actually abound around what China's emerging role in world affairs means in terms of addressing global challenges and risks. Fresh on the back of the sixth plenum at the start of the month, which set the stage for next year's leadership reshuffle and Xi's third term legacy, and against the backdrop of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, FOCAC, with its focus on post-pandemic recovery, trade and investment and health. Today, actually, we're going to be here to discuss the growing role and impact of China as a power in the multilateral development banks. China's growing role in MDBs is one area that reflects its growing footprint in the global development landscape. And when it joined the World Bank over three decades ago, it was a developing country on the brink of its economic boom. Of course, since then, it's become a, the largest borrower of the World Bank and then joined nearly every major MDB. A new report from ODI, which we're going to hear about soon, gives us the most comprehensive understanding to date of China's engagement with the MDBs in its diverse forms and in the motivations behind it. In recent decades, from being a borrower, China is increasingly playing the role of creditor and a supplier of finance to these institutions. And in the last seven years, China has also created two new multilateral institutions in the form of the New Development Bank and the Asian in in Infrastructure Investment Bank. However, as you can see, it's clear that China is not 100% satisfied with the status quo and has long been pushing for governance reform in the World Bank and other institutions to increase its shareholding and representation in line with the economic weight it sees it having in the world economy and to increase its voice and influence in these multilateral spaces. The recent allegations around Kristalina Georgieva's involvement in inflating China's ranking in the World Bank's Doing Business Index has also poured fresh controversy around China's influence in MDBs. And this has been the talk in many newspapers and, and, and journalistic reports, as well as amongst academics. It highlights the growing sensitivity to China's weight in these institutions and raises questions around the potential pressures facing the banks in keeping powerful shareholders on board. It also raises broader questions around how they reflect the voice of emerging countries like China, but also of the developing countries they serve. In a period of intensifying geopolitical rivalries, 
How do MDBs navigate the tensions between their powerful members and ensure commitment and the resources to their fundamental mission? So I'm delighted actually today to be joined by a distinguished panel of speakers to kick off our discussion on this topic. We'll be taking questions and reflections from our audience during, during the Q&A, so please do use the chat box below um, to feed them in throughout the discussion. And also please feel free to engage with the discussion on Twitter at ODIDev, um, hashtag ReformMDBs. So it's my privilege to actually start to introduce our panel. Um, first of all, I'd like to introduce Yeyu, who's an Associate Research Fellow and Assistant Director of the Institute for World Economic Studies at the Shanghai Institute for International Studies. And her research focuses on global economic governance, multilateral development banks, the G20 and China's role. Welcome, Yeyu. I'd also like to um, introduce um, Kevin Gallagher, um, Kevin is a professor of global development policy at Boston University, where he directs the Global Development Policy Center and the Global China Initiative, which tracks Chinese development finance and its impacts. And he also serves on the UN Committee for Development Policy and co-chaired the T20 tax, Task Force um, on International Financial Architecture for Stability and Development at the G20. Welcome, Kevin. Um, also, we're joined um, today by Scott Morris. Um, Scott is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development and director of the U.S. Development Policy Program and co-director of the Sustainable Development Finance Program. His research looks at development finance issues, debt policy, governance issues at international financial institutions such as World Bank and IMF, and also looks um, extensively at China's development finance. And he previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Development Finance and Debt at the US Treasury during the Obama administration. Scott, welcome to you. Um, and then we're also joined um, by Chris Humphreys, who is a Senior Research Associate at ODI and a Senior Scientist at the ETH Zurich Center for Development and Cooperation and is an expert on development finance and has focused much of his work in recent years on exploring the financial capacity of MDBs. And last but not least, um, Yunan Chen, who's a senior researcher at ODI and her work centers around global development finance architecture and um, China's role in global development. She's a PhD candidate at John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and a former researcher of the China Africa Research in Initiative and has also worked extensively um, on some of the um, reports um, that we've been leading here at ODI looking at China's um, outward um, international investment. So we have, I'm sure you'll all agree, a very illustrious panel um, and I look forward to everybody um, using the opportunity to ask the panel um, lots of um, exciting and uh, investigative questions. Um, so let's get started. So it's my pleasure actually to invite first and foremost Yunan, Yunan and Chris to present some of the main findings from the new ODI report, which outlines the significance of China's growing um, role in the MDBs, the form it takes in terms of the shareholding um, financing and institutional creation and some of those drivers um, behind these trends and the implications for MDB reform. So over to you for the presentation. Okay. Um, thank you, everyone. Thanks, Rebecca, for the uh, great introduction. Um, and it's a pleasure to, to join you all today to discuss uh, our report. I am going to give a 
a very brief overview of our paper and some of the key findings, and then I'm going to hand over to Chris to, to conclude. Um, to start first a bit on the rationale behind the paper, uh, there's been a growing body of research now on China's bilateral development finance, including uh, by some of our, our present panelists here. But the multilateral aspect of what China's doing is, is far less understood and it's really, um, I think, less visible. But MDBs are one arena in which we are seeing China playing a, a much greater role in global governance, uh, and as Rebecca mentioned, it's shifting from being the largest borrower to increasingly playing a creditor role. Um, but it's also a system that's really struggled to accommodate China's growing economic weight. So our paper tries to map out some of the landscape of China's participation in MDBs, and we look at three uh, key dimensions of engagement where China has adopted quite creative and adaptive strategies in order to achieve some of its strategic goals. So the first dimension is that of China's role as a, as a supplier of finance in large MDBs. And China has pushed to increase its shareholding within the World Bank and within other MDBs through increasing its capital contributions, mostly without success. Uh, and despite some limited reforms, China's shareholding at the World Bank, uh, currently at 6.1%, is still disproportionately low relative to its economic size. Shareholding in other regional banks like the African Development Bank and the, and the IDB has also been a, a zero-sum context with other non-borrowing members. Uh, in response to these constraints, China has used its financial resources quite creatively. And in the paper, we look at the creation of um, several co-financing funds that China has initiated. This began around 2014 with a $2 billion China co-financing fund at the IDB. And this was followed by a $3 billion fund at the IFC, which eventually evolved into the MCPP program, and that has also crowded in other uh, private investors as well. And finally, uh, a $2 billion China, uh, sorry, Africa Growing Together Fund, uh, or AGTF, at the AFDB. Uh, and, and while these sums may be small compared to the, the grand scheme of what China is doing in its bilateral development finance, they are still significant resources for these MDB institutions. For China, they've been a way as well to export its significant capital reserves to, to get better commercial returns and better use out of it. And they've been a way for China to gain influence at these banks um, without changing formal structural power. In the same way that other uh, members have established trust funds, these, these are ways to just ensure that China is listened to a bit more by the management. What's important to note is that these funds are managed by the bank staff themselves. They follow bank rules on procurement, on transparency and project safeguards. But they are uh, Chinese in origin in terms of the finance and they are committed up front, which means they serve as, a, as an extra checkbook to the institutions but they are still a second best option. Um, as a financial resource, they cannot be leveraged unlike core capital. The second dimension that we discuss is China's involvement in small borrower-led MDBs. And, and in this arena, China is really quite distinctive. Um, the most significant areas that we focus on is its shareholding 
in uh, three MDBs in Africa, in Afraxin Bank, in the West African Development Bank, and the East African Trade and Development Bank, or TDB, and also in the uh, Caribbean Development Bank in, in the Caribbean and Latin America region. And this goes far beyond any other former colonial powers like France or the UK, and far beyond the US, which does not have any shareholding in these institutions. And here we see China playing a, a quite supportive role in building the financial capacity and the governance of these MDB institutions. We've also seen significant lines of credit from CDB and Exim Bank as well in, in supporting their operations. Uh, and it's timely that taking place today is the eighth ministerial FOCAC forum, which follows now 20 years of this institutionalized China-Africa relationship. But when China joined these MDBs in the 90s and early 2000s, it was still at the early stages of its regional diplomacy in Africa. Membership of these small MDBs is another channel for China to build and maintain its relations with sovereign governments in the developing world. And it's particularly useful as a platform as well in regions where China doesn't necessarily have bilateral diplomatic relations with every country. Uh, aside from that, they're also useful in providing intelligence on local developments and commercial opportunities uh, that, that may be of interest to Chinese commercial actors and firms. Third and finally, and perhaps most visibly uh, in the MDB space, we've seen China's a new role as an initiator and co-creator of two of the newest MDBs in the form of the BRICS New Development Bank and in the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And these two institutions, their creation can be read as a response to these failed attempts to channel finance and to increase its voice in the uh, World Bank and, and the large MDBs. Um, what's interesting about these newer MDBs is that while they may be Chinese initiated and both located within China, they do present distinct and different identities to the world. We have the more south-facing uh, NDB, which embodies an ideology and a governance structure the, of, of equality, of South-South cooperation. Meanwhile, the north-facing AIIB, that is much more Chinese-led, Chinese-dominated, but still distills and draws from international best practices and engages with the World Bank and other international partners much more. Both institutions also embody a much more uh, Chinese guiding philosophy, perhaps, on how to do development. Um, there's a stronger representation for, for developing countries, a stronger focus on infrastructure and economic transformation, and an emphasis on reducing bureaucracy and, and, uh, and, and inefficiency. Uh, so to quickly wrap up, there is this uh, perception of China being a challenger and uh, undermining the Bretton Woods institutions. And what we show in our, in our research is a story of, of an emerging power that is largely playing within the rules of the system, but is asserting greater ambitions for influence in shaping it and shaping its future direction. What it also demonstrates though, is that China does value the developmental role that MDBs play, and it is seeking to support them financially and otherwise in making that developmental impact. And with that, I'm going to pass to Chris. Thank you. 
Hi there. Uh, thanks so much, Yunan, for that uh, excellent summary of our, our work. Um, I'm just going to have a couple quick words here to, to tie it together a little bit. Um, I, I think what Yunan and I have tried to do is step away a little bit from the heated rhetoric, uh, pro-China, anti-China, and try to take a look at what's actually happening in the world uh, as a basis for looking at China more objectively. And one thing that stands out to us, um, amongst many things, uh, is pragmatism. Um, China, as, as Yunnan has pointed out, Chinese authorities have tried to sort of go in through the front door uh, and increase their shareholding at the major MDBs, and they have not been able to in any significant way because of the resistance of other shareholders. Uh, so it's found other ways, uh, some of them extremely creative ways, uh, as Yunnan has laid out, uh, and I think other countries uh, can learn from that. Um, obviously, the Chinese government is pursuing uh, China's national interests um, through the MDBs, just as other countries have uh, over the decades. Uh, but those interests may align uh, in some cases and perhaps even in many cases uh, with the interests of other countries uh, in the multilateral space this is not a zero-sum game um, china is clearly willing and able to dedicate substantial resources uh, through multilateral channels uh, to address development needs around the world uh, it sees the value of engaging multilaterally uh, and for a country that has uh, huge uh, bilateral agencies like the China XM Bank or China Development Bank, uh, that's no small thing. And that says something about China's attitude. Uh, I think MDB management and other shareholders uh, would do well to recognize that uh, and also to think about the best ways to channel rather than, than just simply trying to, to block China's rise in these institutions, rather to think about how they can best channel uh, China's energy and resources uh, to address the huge development needs that we all are trying to face. But that doesn't mean all the actors involved uh, are going to share China's vision for how an MDB should be run or how development should, should occur for that matter. Um, but you know, China has one of the most amazing uh, development experiences uh, in world history over the last 30 years. So I think it has some lessons to offer uh, the rest of the world about how development might take place. Uh, the Chinese authorities themselves uh, can do more to help this. Uh, on the one hand, I mean, China has generally focused very much on economic growth and infrastructure, uh, and they could do more to help the poorest of the poor, which has not been their focus thus far. And that could be by, for example, uh, contributing more substantially to MDB concessional lending windows uh, than they have in the past or other anti-poverty uh, programs. That wouldn't help, help I, I think, the credibility with which China speaks in the international development uh, world. Uh, and Chinese uh, government officials also could do more to engage more frequently and more openly with the rest of the international development community. I mean, we all know that China policy is not decided by, you know, five people in a dark room somewhere in Beijing, uh, but it's very difficult for external observers to look behind that curtain and see what's going on in China and understand why it's going on. Uh, and there are some Chinese officials like, for example, uh, AAIB President uh, Jin Li Chun, who have been very active uh, in engaging in the rest of the world, and, and uh, that's definitely to be encouraged. Uh, um, but China would do well to do more of that to help uh, reduce suspicion and increase uh, mutual understanding about these issues that are so important to all of us. Uh, and with that, I'll, I'll conclude. Um, a lot of my thinking on these issues is built directly upon the work uh, of the other three panelists here today, and I'm looking uh, very much looking forward to hearing what they uh, have to say. So thank you. Um, thanks very much, uh, Chris and Yunan, for that um, overview. So both of you sort of talked a bit about, you know, the perceptions of China and China's vision. So actually, I want to turn to uh, our next panelist, um, to Ye Yu, to just 
give us a little bit of her insights and um, firstly on what she thinks has changed in the domestic context um, of China's engagement with NDBs and then also the rather more difficult question perhaps of how does China's leadership um, see the MDBs um, in the context of China's um, own interests, own national interests? Yeah, you over to you. Uh, uh, thank you, uh, Rebecca, and uh, uh, good afternoon and good uh, good morning, everyone. I'm so uh, honored to be here today, and uh, uh, congratulations first for the great report. Both the authors' team and also the panelists today, I think, are the most widely uh, uh, cited authors on this topic on MDBs and also China's rule. Uh, the question you asked about the uh, domestic context of China on the uh, on the uh, on, on its uh, rule on its um, cooperation with MDB, I think it's uh, I'm going to share my uh, personal view as an inside observer on this topic. Um, I think uh, the um, the I would like to China. Uh, graduated from the uh, IDA in 1999. So actually, uh, uh, our topic today focuses on China's rule as a shareholder of the MDB, I think uh, could be traced back to that moment. But uh, I would like to focus on the last 10 years uh, evolution of um, Chinese, uh, I mean, Chinese um, um, uh, actually, evolution from a kind of uh, romantic ro romanticism to realism. Um, in 2010, um, Yunnan mentioned very well the, the IBRD's voting power reform. I think from that moment, China uh, became the uh, founding member of the G20 summit, and uh, and then and. Uh, in, uh, since the, the paper actually summarized very well how China increased the contribution to IDA uh, actually in the last 10 years. Even though the, the size, I mean, the, the relatively, the, the amount of the contribution is quite small compared to the OECD DAC countries, but I think the speed is quite significant. I think uh, it's a most uh, it's it's a largest um, increase from the emerging donors, even compared with the uh, traditional donors. It, 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 the speed is quite significant, which shows the Ch Chinese commitment to the uh, MDBs. Even though uh, it launched the AIB, uh, still the increase of, of its contribution to IDA is still uh, uh, increase uh, even uh, even fast. So and and then uh, in twenty in twenty thirteen the BRI was launched. Uh, in twenty fourteen, I'm just going to uh, to list several the the, the important notes of the evolution. In 2014, that time, the uh, finance minister, Lo Jiwei, uh, actually, uh, in, in his speech, uh, talked about China, China as China's fiscal policy as a major country. So major country fiscal policy, uh, this kind of uh, uh, idea was was uh, was raised. Based on that, uh, 
we have seen the uh, increasing contribution of China to either. And then in 2017, uh, Trump uh, came to power. And, uh, but still in 2018, we, we noted that uh, um, under, the, uh, under the support of China, the IBRD still at the World Bank uh, group actually uh, adopted the largest capital increase in the history. So, so, uh, um, so I mean, the, the cooperation is still going on. And uh, 2020, we, we see that China, uh, the President Xi um, actually announced the so-called dual circulation uh, strategy, um, which is uh, actually uh, I talked a, a lot about that, uh, how will uh, China increase its focus on domestic when the U.S. is pushing for decoupling or that. Uh, and then I think uh, this year, uh, the evolution from romanticism to realism, we I think uh, a significant uh, uh, movement, uh, actually uh, the uh, World Bank's doing business report, uh, I think th this, this, uh, this would be uh, my personal view in that uh, quite uh, very damaging for Chinese, uh, um, not only the leadership, but also the uh, general public, um, which is, uh, to look at China's uh, attitude towards MDB, especially the World Bank and those major MDBs, I think, is quite different from the Africa, from Latin America, that uh, they suffer from their conditionalities or very negative views from the public. Uh, Chinese public is quite positive towards the World Bank generally. And uh, uh, China feel that uh, the World Bank shares a lot of knowledge, not, but not only the, the capital. So, uh, so, so it's quite respectful to the World Bank. But this year's doing business report, I think, because Chinese uh, government and the not only the central but also the provincial governments take the World Bank's doing business report quite seriously, very seriously, and has uh, has. Uh, um, adopted many reforms suggested by the by the Doi Business Report. So after that, I think uh, this really damaging for for uh, for the uh, relationship. But to uh, to conclude, um, I'm still personally uh, optimistic. It's it's not it, although it's damaging, but it's it's not uh, deadly uh, uh, destructive. I think uh, still. Uh, I think we, we still realize that there's uh, quite a space for for China to uh, better engage with the MDBs. Um, Professor Nagir Woods from, from UK, I think uh, she uh, quite uh, summarized quite well uh, in the last uh, couple of years saying, saying that multilateralism uh, survives great fracture. The main, most important reason is that China uh, continues to support, um, even though there, uh, I mean, there are this kind of accidents about doing business reports and also the so-called forced labor uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of very, um, I mean, to to demolize nice Chinese. Um, so, so uh, anyway, I I think. Uh, Generally, if you look at the last 10 years, we have seen a more volatile relationship 
China is uh, more and more feel that the international organizations, not only the multilateral development banks, look more like a, a, a trap. But uh, but to, um, I mean to to be, I think uh, that is the that is a negative side. But uh, uh, for professionals, for those uh, officials in charge of these issues, I think uh, we still think that we we need to be to be. Um, to keep to to keep rational and uh, to be more more uh, to talk about a more technical uh, cooperation. Um, I think China wants to. What is the China's core interest? I think it would like the MDBs to recognize its development model, not to follow those very uh, political uh, like the U.S. Congress or whatever. So uh, let me just stop here, and I welcome your uh, questions and comments. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Yeyu, for that very um, frank and, and open discussion on, on China's perceptions um, of, of its role and, and what it um, would like to see. And um, just building on, um, I think, something that you said about romanticism to realism, I think that <clears throat> leads quite well into the, um, the next um, panellists who, who I'd like to put to them. Um, what, what does China's growing um, ambitions for MDBs, both the, the old ones uh, and some of the new ones, and the Bretton, one, Bretton Woods institutions mean? Um, how, how do you see um, China's new, these Chinese-led MDBs institutions challenging or, or complementing um, the, the existing system? Are, are we too romantic about it? Do we need to get real? Well, first of all, uh, congratulations on a on a great study, uh, and great to be on this panel with uh, with friends. There's been no less than three studies that have come out this season on China and the MDBs. All of them are terrific. Uh, one by Fitch Ratings, which I encourage folks to read. Another by Scott Morris and his team at the Center for Global Development, and this ODI report. Uh, really, this one to be commended for putting the development needs and priorities uh, at the center of its focus. Back in 2005, Robert Zellick criticized China for not being a responsible stakeholder in the system, but what a difference a decade makes. These reports and others show that over the past decade, China has now matched the total amount of development finance power that the entire traditional MDB system has. During the same time, the Trump administration deserves a little bit of credit for passing through a small capital increase for some of the MDBs in creating a small development bank uh, of, of their own in the United States. These moves are significant and promising, but pale in comparison to China's contributions to the system. Indeed, in the midst of scandal at the IMF and the World Bank, gridlock at the G20 that has failed to contain the COVID crisis and the economic fallout that has come with it, and the recent failure of advanced economies to meet its, their pledges on climate finance at COP26 there in the UK, we may have to be pointing that finger elsewhere. To answer your question then, what does it mean for the traditional Bretton Woods MDBs? Uh, this report rightly maps and discusses the co-financing, shareholder stakes, and the new MDBs that are part of China's influence. But a fourth has to be added, and that's the continued support and expansion of China's bilateral development capabilities in its two large policy banks and its growing number of equity funds that are not in the MDBs in the ways that, uh, that some of these studies show. China's put together a pretty robust, what I'd call one foot in and one foot out strategy that allows it to punch against its quota weight in the major MDBs, 
to ensure that more development finance and choice is available to developing countries on a variety of terms and to have more leverage to advance its own interests throughout the system. This has been beneficial to China's objectives at the MDBs and better for developing countries in need of more financial choices. To main, re, maintain relevance, the MDBs must apply their own rules of voice and representation to China, or they further risk losing relevance, especially given all these alternatives that China has created or is taking part of. I want to underscore one of the recommendations in the report that the MDBs need a stepwise increase in capital and need to use their balance sheets more effectively. In so doing, let, letting China pay in and earn corresponding voting power should be central to harnessing the development finance that we need over the 21st century. The MDBs are the traditional ones are now just one-fifth of the total amount of development finance in the world economy and losing relevance. Traditional MDBs are no longer the first resort for all but a few low-income countries that have fewer choices. I was on a panel with Vera Songway yesterday and she says that many of the countries in her region in Africa uh, are willing to pay a liquidity premium in private markets, pay more money for shorter terms than go to the IFIs. Asian countries also have different strategies by lending money to the United States in, uh, in order to self-insure and self-finance and self-capitalize their own development finance rather than, uh, rather than going to the IFIs. China is now a third option to private capital markets and forex intervention for many emerging market and developing countries and it can only increase. If the MDBs can't accommodate healthy competition within the MDBs themselves, then they must be open to competition outside the boardrooms and buildings that they occupy. There's much more choice in the system than there, than there was, and as an economist, choice and competition to me is a good thing. China's actions have already read, led to the MDBs rediscovering infrastructure finance and working hard to cut the time it takes from approval to disbursement and actual doing projects. And of course, it should also be said that China can learn from the best practices and big mistakes of the MDBs over the past decade with respects to due diligence, transparency, and beyond. We know from the World Bank that Chinese overseas development finance has a potential, the, has the largest potential for growth of all of the different programs on offer in the world economy, three times that of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We also know from work by Axel Dreher and colleagues that was recently published in the American Economic Journal that the Chinese overseas development finance is associated with economic growth where there is no significant correlation with World Bank finance. The competition has begun. In terms of the challenges of these new institutions, I wouldn't say that the AIB is a real challenge. Uh, that Jin LeChun, the pioneering president there, asked the, the person who set up the institution to go look at all the MDBs, model yourself after the MDBs, but discard the mistakes that they've made and the cumbersome parts and try to build something new. They don't exactly have their own DNA yet. They've only been piggybacking on other MDB projects, but hopefully they'll evolve in a way that the CAF has and really have its own DNA and be an independent infrastructure powerhouse the way the, the CAF is. The NDB is a little different, the New Development Bank. Uh, its challenge on one level is on the voice and representation. Even though China is the largest economy, it could, like it did at the AAIB, say I'm going to put in a certain amount of base capital and therefore have all the voting power. But interestingly, all five of the countries have the same amount of voting power. Now that may be different as the bank expands uh, and many developing countries are already expressing concern that uh, having veto power by five countries is not much better than having veto power by one or two. Let me conclude by echoing a sentence in the ODI report 
that says China's engagement in the development finance system should be applauded rather than seen with automatic suspicion. The goal for developing countries should be how to maximize the benefits of this new financing and minimizing the real risks. The West now has no choice but to open the door and let China have more say and sway in the MD system and leave the door open for countries to choose Chinese-led institutions when the MDBs can't deliver or can't deliver enough. While this inside and outside competition can be healthy, it can also be messy. Charles Kindleberger said that not only do states on the global system need to create development finance institutions to provide longer-run counter-cyclical financing where the private sector won't go, but he also put a premium on global coordination of macroeconomic policies. The more institutions we have in this space, the less easy it is to coordinate on our global goals and providing these global public goods. I see promise in the Finance and Common Summit taking away the uh, conversation among development finance institutions from solely the spring meetings uh, and the annual meetings of the World Bank and the IMF. But much work will need to be done in the global coordination of these financing instruments if we're truly going to meet some of the public goods that the world needs to provide, regardless of the differences of the two countries that are emerging as the largest powers in the world. Thanks so much. Um, thanks very much, Kevin, for that. Um, yeah, just I think just to pick up on your on your last point about China's engagement um, should be applauded um, in the MDBs. But actually, we're, we're we're looking at this engagement against the backdrop of some quite significant geopolitical volatility. So I want to turn to the next panelist to sort of pick up on that a little bit. Um, you know, we're seeing quite a lot of tension, obviously, in the the U.S.-China relationship. So. What does that mean for the MDB system and what are the risks um, and what are the opportunities? Um, and, and should we be more cautious in how we're engaging with China um, in this space? Um, well, thank you, Rebecca. Um, and as Kevin said, it's, it's really great to be here among uh, friends and, and people whose work I, I respect tremendously in, in this area. Um, Kevin also spared me the uh, the awkwardness of promoting my own report on this topic, and uh, let me let me just say as uh, Chris Humphrey before the session was we were talking about our our uh, both of our reports are the Center for Global Development and this one from ODI, um, and just to to note as he said that these are very much complementary reports. Um, it is not a case where uh, one is what right and one is wrong. In fact, I think we we come to the topic very much with the same spirit and, and very much with a, a desire to bring data um, and, and, and a dispassionate approach to what has become increasingly a, a challenging um, topic, Rebecca, as you said, in, in a geostrategic sense. Um, so let me, um, let me make a few quick points um, to round out what we've heard so far. Um, and particularly focusing on lessons, I would say, of the last decade as we look at China's participation in, in these multilateral institutions. Um, the first is uh, really to emphasize that, um, you know, I think the, the, the lesson of the one overriding, overarching lesson, lesson of the last decade is that um, China's decisions in the past decade have not by any means been a rejection of the Bretton Woods institutions. Um, I think it is better framed as, as both of our reports do, I think, as, as an embrace of multilateralism more generally. Um, now, I think we should also observe that um, 
China's um, increased participation in multilateral institutions uh, coincides with uh, an increase in, in bilateral development finance. So it's not so much a choice of one over the other or one set of institutions over the other, and more that it's more of everything uh, in, in the past decade in, in terms of uh, China's engagement in the world. Um, I think we should also, it's important to recognize that while on the multilateral side, uh, particularly within the MDBs, but also in some of the other multilateral development institutions, there is a component of China's rise that is form almost formulaic or mechanistic, namely as China's economy has grown, the rules of these institutions tend to um, boost that country's um, role and participation, um, um, financing obligations, and then um, you know the governance that comes along with that, although there are some challenging nuances to that as, as we've heard already. But I, I think it's also important to recognize that there's a discretionary component uh, to China's um, choices in the last decade where, as we had heard from the ODI report, these uh, trust funds that China has established uh, within the MDBs, uh, but that has been alongside other choices, including, uh, and, and really uh, in a dominant way, choices as an IDA donor, um, where China has um, increased its position dramatically. As you noted, not so long ago was an IDA recipient country, and, and as of today is now um, squarely among the leading IDA donors with some expectation that it will continue to grow and, and be really most likely in the top five uh, IDA donors, which is, which is really a, um, uh, a critical anchor position in, in the international, in the multilateral architecture. Um, similarly, I think we've seen um, very strong growth in choices that China has made uh, within the UN development system, among other vertical trust funds that, that, that uh, play leading roles uh, multilaterally. Um, so I think there is a, there's a story about China's rise that is, again, both a function of uh, China's overall economic growth, but clearly reflects um, policy choices that have been made by the Chinese leadership to embrace uh, multilateral institutions uh, as an instrument of, of development finance, even as uh, bilateral finance has increased um, quite a lot over the same period. So um, to the question of what is this, how does this look, um, particularly today in light of, of growing tensions um, bilaterally between the US and China, um, maybe more broadly cast between China and G7 countries, China and the West, um, again, I think the let's quickly take a historical perspective. And so um, if we go back a decade, again, uh, yeah, you pointed this out very usefully. Um, you had um, key governance reforms at the World Bank and the IMF, um, at the IMF quota reforms and, and shareholding reforms at the World Bank. Um, there's, an, there's a narrative that sort of emerged in retrospect that had um, basically the U.S. blocking um, the IMF quota reforms that would benefit China. And as a result, China, um, in, a, in, in essence, turned its back on the Bretton Woods institutions and, and created the AIB and the New Development Bank. As I already said, I think that, that, that gets it wrong um, in two ways. One, um, 
it 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 um it glosses over the role that the U.S. government at the time, if we go back to 2010, played as a champion actually of of China's increased quota, increased shareholding at the World Bank. Um, the, the you know the reality is that the U.S. Congress uh, took its time, in, uh, took a long time in ultimately approving those quota reforms. It was much more timely, by the way, in approving the shareholding reforms of the World Bank. But I think it really is important to recognize, separate from what that branch of the U.S. government did, it was it was the admitted the the Obama administration at the time that was the leading champion for China in in obtaining uh, greater governance roles in in those institutions. Um, and as I said, on on the Chinese side. I do not think the AIB was in any way a rejection of, of the Bretton Woods institutions. It, it, it was very much uh, of a piece with a broader uh, embrace of multilateralism. Now, recognizing all of that historical context, you know, where are we today? It is, we are in a very different place and, and we already had been in recent years. Uh, to be blunt about it, um, it seems very unlikely to me that, that the current U.S. government um, uh, would play the kind of role that the U.S. government of a decade ago uh, chose to play when it came to um, that kind of championing of, of China obtaining um, greater uh, governance uh, roles in these institutions. It is, I think, as Yunin pointed out, uh, it is a zero-sum game. Uh, someone has to lose for China to gain. Um, and, you know, all the, with that kind of dynamic in place, you need uh, some sort of um, honest broker in the process, someone who's willing to step forward, look at the landscape and say, and sort of to force the issue. I think with without the U.S. being willing to play that kind of role, it is hard to see the path forward where um, China's shareholding in these institutions actually does begin to uh, catch up with what the formula uh, which is largely based on the size of China's economy, would say, uh, would point to in terms of, of where China should be. I think that's, um, if anything, we are uh, underplaying how important that is. And as we look at the next few years, uh, this is going to be extraordinary, extraordinarily challenging. Um, what does China do in response to this? If, if it is uh, evident that um, there just is not a willingness to, um, uh, to to um, to allow um, the formula to to um, prevail, uh, and and what it, on the U.S. side? How does the U.S. handle this in the face of um, again what what sort of an honest look at the numbers suggests should happen? Um, I don't have the answer to that. I I just I see it as as really a critical challenge um, in the months and years ahead. Um, now, uh, let me close just by pointing to a few other areas that I, that I see as challenges when it comes to China's um, increasing multilateralism and increasingly dominant position, even uh, with um, the limitations that are imposed by these, um, these very difficult shareholding reform discussions. Um, one area that I, I think we emphasize more in our report um, is the role of procurement basically commercial contracts that, that, um, that are sort of a, an, a, a key element of development finance through the multilateral system. Um, 
And you know the the reality that it, particularly in the past decade, Chinese firms um, have done very well under the MDB procurement systems. Um, they it is important to recognize they have done well uh, under procurement systems that are transparent, that are competitive, that have rules that are clearly understood, and that have been uh, blessed and adopted by uh, the governance uh, of these institutions. So, um, you know, we should recognize that um, this is the result of honest competition, we can say. That doesn't make it any less difficult, uh, certainly politically. Um, I think if we are in an era of geostrategic competition with the word, with the emphasis on competition, and particularly where US policy seems to be embracing a competitive model for development finance, um, I think it will be hard to avoid um, the difficulty of, of these procurement outcomes at the MDBs for too long when it comes to um, uh, when it comes to um, concerns um, on the U.S. side, namely, uh, why have U.S. firms all but disappeared when it comes to the procurement story of these institutions, and why are, you, are Chinese firms so dominant? Now, in a simple way, we know why. Uh, the Chinese firms tend to be the lowest bidder, bidders on these projects. Uh, the procurement rules emphasize uh, least cost for very good reasons and, and for reasons that are supportive of good development outcomes um, for MDB client countries. Um, but we can trace that back to a broader set of concerns that, that the US and other countries may have about state subsidies, SOEs, and the role that they are playing in development finance globally. Um, so this is an area I think of, of will be of increasing tension. And then finally, um, there are a set of areas around uh, accountability of all the shareholders. Um, one leading issue being around debt sustainability, uh, another set of issues around um, uh, safeguards issues and an accountability uh, in the safeguarding of projects, where I think increasingly uh, again, this will be an area of scrutiny in terms of Chinese behavior, not so much Chinese behavior in the multilateral institutions, but what are the implied obligations of any multilateral shareholder when it comes to their activities as bilateral actors? And I think this, we are seeing this play out already on the debt agenda, and I think will be an increasing area of scrutiny uh, when it comes to other areas. Um, so let, let me stop with that. Um, thank you very much, Scott. Um, can I just ask, um, we're now going to move to the Q&A. Um, if any of the audience um, have any questions, could you please post it um, in the chat um, and I can um, ask the panel um, your question. Um, I'm not seeing any Q questions there just yet. So perhaps if the panel um, will indulge me, I, I will kick off with a question and it sort of builds um, on, on what Scott was saying. Um, so we, we've we've heard actually from all the panelists and then Scott in particular around, you know, the issue of sort of the US-China relations resulting in a sort of zero-sum competition, the increasing tensions um, for rivalry, um, you know, within the MDB space. But could I just perhaps ask um, all the panelists, do they see any areas of real potential cooperation and, and alignment. I mean, one of the MDB's kind of key roles is to responding to global shocks, which will, of course, um, have impacts um, on, on both China and the US. I'm thinking, you know, issues such as climate change, obviously we, we've got the pandemic and so on. So some of these other 
um, issues. But do you see any areas of potential cooperation and alignment? Um, perhaps if we go to uh, yeah, you first. Uh, thank you for the question. And um, I think the uh, the potential opportunities for collaboration is is huge. There's uh, from the demand side. Uh, the I think the MDBs have been rising in the last uh, decade due to the rising global challenges. So from the climate change to global health uh, uh, crisis, and also uh, for the uh, economic recovery, I think there's uh, there's so many uh, so many uh, issues and areas that uh, major shareholders should collaborate uh, together. And uh, I do believe that uh, Scott mentioned uh, a couple of challenges. I fully understand that for the procurement and also uh, the ESG, the standards. Uh, I want to uh, just stress one point that uh, China actually, uh, in I think it's uh, starting from 2017, uh, the, uh, China was trying to uh, uh, align its BRI with MDBs uh, better with a new uh, initiative called MCDF, Multilateral Center uh, for Develop Development Finance, uh, which is to basically to actually to uh, um, push more alignment on the, uh, on the standards um, between BRI and the MDBs. But uh, that was also elaborated uh, as a political move. I mean, um, they uh, interpret as Chinese um, uh, movement to promote its BRI through the MDBs, like the United Nations. So, so every um, any terminology of BRI would be rejected at the international organizations. So. Um, if not the political, uh, those kind of, uh, I think I think there's China is open to the standards of the MDBs, even though uh, it needs to, to do a lot of homework. But I think the uh, incentive is here to do that. Um, and for the procurement, uh, I think there's uh, if you look at the MDBs for the infrastructure projects, that is, uh, I think China it's it's just just to follow the procedures of of the even even though the um the other uh for its bri projects my understanding is that many companies are open to the uh, to the uh competitive procedure just i hope that uh, on in the uh because china has not accessed the wto's uh, over procurement agreement or on that i think uh, uh i think uh there we, we will we will see the the, the progress there so yeah let, let me stop stop here um thank you very much um, anyone else on the panel want to jump in on that question of um areas for potential cooperation and alignment and um, we do have a couple of other questions um pouring in now but if anybody's got any points to add on that maybe just just very quickly i mean there's no question that the shareholding is a zero-sum game unfortunately that's just the nature of the beast of the way mdbs are structured uh but the broader picture is you know it's not we all are trying to achieve similar 
uh, goals. And the question is how to get around that sort of rigid shareholding structure in a way, for example, to channel more financial resources. There's a lot of interest right now in, in capitalizing these MDBs to attack a lot of development challenges. But because of this zero-sum shareholding structure, it makes it difficult. Uh, but finding creative ways to get around that, um, I think, would be a great way to, to try to build cooperation with, with the United States and other major shareholders. Yeah, thank thank you, Chris. And actually, that that segues nicely into to the next question. So the um, the participant says, "Thanks very much for this excellent discussion." But the the panelists have focused very much on the bilateral U.S.-China relationship, which is true. We have. Um, so, what does the panel think um, should be the role of European MDB shareholders in this context? Who who would like to take that one? Well, just to jump in to not have any empty, uh, empty airspace, uh, I mean, it's interesting, you know, looking at the World Bank, the United States is not really overrepresented in terms of its shareholding, um, whereas a lot of European nations are. Um, so it might be well uh, worth thinking of the Europeans. It's, it's very easy to put the U.S. as the bad guy in, in this particular movie, uh, but I think the Europeans need to look at themselves a little bit uh, in this context as well. Thank you. Anyone else? On the European MDB shareholder stance, uh, I might also jump in here. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so if we move outside of the of the the world of big MDBs, you know, where China and European shareholders do overlap is in some of these smaller uh, sub-regional development banks, where we do see the influence of, of some of these former colonial powers. And there, you know, I think there is a a, a good platform for collaboration from from actors like France, Canada, the UK, Germany, in working with the Chinese shareholders to, to increase capital to these smaller institutions and also make uh, to fortify them in, in having a, a more localized but very effective development impact. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, I'd add that the Europeans have an essential role to play. They, they're a, a still a little bit more like the, the world that Scott painted that had a more balanced view of China in the global system. Uh, the United States is, is just not is just not there yet. Um, we need to we need to have a deliberative dem democratic discussion in our country about uh, about the need to continue to address in a hard way our significant grievances with each other, China and the United States, but also realize that the two countries, being the largest economies in the world, uh, have to work together on providing global public goods. We're not there yet, but the uh, Europeans are, are good intermediaries. They, they play a very constructive role on the board of the AIB. Um, and we really need them to play more of a leadership role at places like the, the G20 uh, and in these MDBs, despite the need for them to decrease their, uh, uh, their shareholders. I, I don't see a, I do see an alignment between the United States and China on some level, but not bilateral cooperation. It's just not uh, for the reasons that Scott discussed uh, uh, the government itself is now more uh, divided on this issue, and the Congress couldn't be more divided on this issue, or more, excuse me, more uh, more aligned, in in my opinion, in the wrong way, uh, on this particular set of issues. But the MDBs, at their best, in the multilateral system, is a place for multilateralized cooperation. You can dis you can downgrade some of the bilateral tensions and have multilateral cooperation and conversation. The United States is retreating from this system. Uh, de in a devastating way under the Trump administration and the Biden administration has struggled in, uh, in for itself, uh, aside from the special drawing rights uh, allocation that happened uh, in August. 
We really need the Europeans to step up to be that sort of responsible, mature, more balanced uh, approach to China uh, and to have the seat at the table where the United States refuses to be. Um, thank you. I mean, we're almost drawing to a close, but I think just just time for, for one more question, I think. Um, I think just to um, reassure the audience, we will be collecting the um, the questions and we will um, share those with the panel. So um, hopefully we might be able to get back to you. I don't know if it's possible um, by, by email or, or, or some other form. Um, but one question here we said the, the the participant would like to ask what does the panel think about the work of the department of international trade and economic affairs the ditea which is probably most relevant for dac donors that are engaged in trilateral cooperation with china anyone scott or, or kevin Trilateral cooperation is a really important thing. Uh, we have so many pressing development needs and there's so many different actors in the system that could complement each other if they work together. China's got the deep pockets, the big, the big capital. It also has the world's best know-how on infrastructure, uh, construction and so forth, but it doesn't have the local knowledge that say a national development bank in Zimbabwe or in Peru might have. And it also doesn't have the years of technical expertise and comparative analysis that some of the more traditional MDBs have had. So some of these instances of working with national development banks on the ground, uh, working with some of the MDBs in China, some of which are in both of the reports that uh, uh, both the ODI and the CGD report, these are important little pilots for, for learning for, to do that triangular cooperation. It helps bring more capital, bring down the cost of capital, and get it more to the places that need it in a more constructive way than, than any of those entities can do on their own at this point in time. The system needs to work together in order to reduce emissions by 45% uh, uh, by 2030 and, by, and to make the world more inclusive. Uh, those two things are sort of the root of many crises that, uh, that ripple well, well beyond the development space. It's urgent to have global cooperation on public goods, especially through development finance and triangular cooperation could be a key mechanism that uh, that should be explored further. And you think that's potentially a, a pattern that we might see developing? I, I know there's been some interest from China on, on this approach um, in certain geographies and, and sectors. Yeah, in 2022, we'll see the rollout of a number of cooperation agreements between the China Development Bank and the Export-Import Bank with national development banks that have overseas uh, activities uh, in Europe, the AFD and the KFW, with national development banks and, uh, and other entities in, in lower income countries. And again, some of the, some of the funds within the, within the MDBs that you, that you talk about, especially at the IDB, there's some interesting funds that mm. not only are China and the IDB working together, but they specifically uh, on land or do private equity with, uh, with uh, local partners and local firms or with national development banks that are closer to the ground. Mm. I don't see it Thank as a trend. You. I see it as something that, uh, that needs to be expanded on. And I think uh, uh, we're not working together at the sort of 30,000 foot leaders level on mm -hmm. global cooperation. So to work from the ground up bank to bank uh, has to at least be a parallel strategy. Yeah, bit bit. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, so less of a trend and more of a need. Um, 
thank you very much for everybody. Um, I'm afraid we've gone over time, which means we've run out of time. Um, so I'm going to have to wrap up um, our discussion. And um, we've received a lot of excellent questions in the chat. And as I said, I, I hope we can somehow um, answer some of those and get back to the people who, who posted those questions. Um, so as we've seen, as China engages and, and seeks more influence um, on an increasingly wide range of global challenges um, impacting international development, such as climate change, humanitarian action, et cetera, it's going to be even more important how MDBs navigating navigate these growing um, political pressures and ensure um, buy-in and commitment of their biggest members. Um, and this is going to be crucial um, to their capacity and ability to be able to mobilize um, development finance to respond to many of these challenges and, and shocks as we're experiencing. So the NDBs have a vital role um, to respond, particularly, as I say, we, we're, we're seeing a lot more intensity and frequency of climate extremes um, as just one example. So the multilateral space um, is going to be a valuable arena for um, positive some um, cooperation and some of these challenges. So I'd like to then thank all of our panelists, um, uh, Ye Yu, Kevin Gallagher, Scott Morris, Chris Humphrey and Yunnan Chen, and especially to all of you who um, tuned in and listened today. Um, this was the second event um, of the new ODI seminar series on the reform of multilateral development banks. Um, a recording um, of the session will also be available on the ODI website um, along with the first um, seminar. So please do look out for those. The next seminar will be in early 2022. And that is going to be focusing on MDB governance and the reform of the board of directors. So details of that will also be up on the ODI website soon. And we hope you will all join us again in the new year. So thank you very much um, and have a wonderful day wherever you are. Thank you.